Hello, my name is Michael Lamb and I am an associate in the commercial and projects team at Shoesmiths. Hello, my name is Ellie Wood and I am also an associate in the commercial and projects team here at Shoesmiths. Welcome to the latest podcast in the ShoePod sessions. The purpose of these sessions is to help our listeners understand the key components of a commercial contract. Today's topic on our journey through a contract series is a brief discussion about some of the remaining boilerplate clauses which haven't been discussed previously. The term boilerplate refers to terms which are repeated in most contracts. They are not the commercial terms that vary from one transaction to another. They instead regulate the operation of the contract and cover matters such as its duration, interpretation, transferability and enforceability. Boilerplate clauses are often standard and most are not typically heavily negotiated, but they are still important. Many contract disputes depend on the drafting of the boilerplate clauses. Some of the previous ShoePod sessions have discussed elements of a contract which could be considered to be boilerplate clauses, and in this session we'll highlight some other boilerplate clauses which you may commonly see in a contract. We'll start with the notices clause, which is something which could be covered in a lot of detail in a session of its own. Today we're just going to discuss the key principles. Most contracts will include a notices clause which sets out the formal process for serving written notices under the contract. Many contracts contain provisions that require one party to serve notice on the other or a third party in certain circumstances, usually when exercising legal rights under the contract. For example, an agreement will often require a party to serve notice on the other of an intention to terminate. Typically, those agreements will include a notices clause to provide for an agreed means of sending these formal notices. But Michael, what else does the notice clause deal with? So a notice clause will usually set out the requirements for a notice. For example, that it must be in writing, it must be signed and it must be sent to a particular address or email address. The clause will also state how a notice can be served, for example, by post, fax or email, and then state a deemed service date after which the notice is deemed to be received, for example, a specified number of days after posting. These requirements are important to be aware of, as the reason why notices clauses are so important is because of the potential consequences of failing to comply. But what are those consequences, Ellie? Well, for example, if there is a specific deadline in a contract for a notice to be served, it is vital that the notice given complies with all the provisions of the contract, because if if it is not validly served, then a party would fail to meet the deadline. Let's say, for example, that a contract has an automatic renewal clause, but that either party can serve written notice to cancel the renewal by a certain date. If a party wants to cancel the renewal and terminate the agreement, it is vital that they consult the notices clause to ensure that any notice they give is validly served, because if not, then their notice is not valid and they have missed the chance to terminate the agreement. I think it's also important to be aware that there are statutory provisions which govern the service of notices as well. If there isn't a notices clause, it's important to check whether any statutory provisions apply. But as the statutory provisions don't necessarily address all the issues, such as service methods and deemed receipt, when preparing a contract, it is preferable to include a specific notices clause for certainty. Now, sometimes a notice clause will state that it applies to all communications and not just formal notices. If this is the case, this means that all forms of communications must be served in accordance with the notices clause, as otherwise they will not be considered to be valid communications. This type of provision can potentially hamper the operation of contract if interpreted too strictly, and so must be carefully considered if present. Finally, it is important to note that a notice clause will usually not apply to the service of any proceedings or other documents in a legal action. This avoids any inconsistency between the notice clauses and the requirements for service in legal action or proceedings. Now, moving on from notices, another common boilerplate clause which you often see is known as a severance clause. A severance clause can help in the circumstances where after entering into a contract, the parties subsequently find that the contract contains provisions which are illegal or against public policy with the result that all or part of the contract could be void or unenforceable. 
this is obviously quite a significant consequence. Absolutely. The purpose of a severance clause is therefore to make clear that in such a case, the parties intend the agreement to survive by severing the offending provisions from the rest of the agreement. A severance clause may also provide for deletion in whole or in part. A common approach is to provide that the clause shall be modified partially to the extent necessary to make it legal. But if that is not possible, then the clause should be deleted in its entirety with the intention that all the other clauses of the agreement should remain in effect. A severance clause is therefore quite a useful provision to ensure that a contract remains in effect if issues arise, allowing something which is invalid, illegal or unenforceable to be removed from the contract. While there does not need to be a specific severance clause for the doctrine of severance to be enforced by a court, in practice it is advisable to include as the court may apply the law differently without an express clause. The next clause we would like to discuss is known as counterparts clause. In practice, when executing a contract, the parties to a contract often execute a separate copy of the contract, each of which they will consider an original. A counterparts clause states this expressly and makes clear that while there may be more than one signed copy, they all constitute the same one contract. A counterparts clause may also be used where the parties execute multiple original contracts or duplicates to confirm that each has the status of an original. Duplicates may be required for tax, regulatory, company administration or other reasons. Again, this can be a valid way to make a contract even without a counterparts clause. A counterparts clause is therefore quite useful to prevent a party or anyone else objecting if there are several signed versions of an agreement. Whilst the contract is still valid if made in this way, without a counterparts clause under the common law, they are still useful to have. So moving on from counterparts, uh, a lot of contracts include what is known as a further assurance clause, which is intended to cover post-completion actions, which are not specifically provided for in a contract. Ideally, all expected post-completion action would be foreseen and expressly provided for in a contract. But this is not always possible. If something has been missed, which, if unremedied, would change the way the agreement was intended to work, a further assurance clause can operate to remedy the situation. But what exactly does this mean, Ellie? So a further assurance clause effectively states that the parties will make sure that if further action is necessary to give effect to the contract, then both parties will take that action or ensure that third parties take that action if necessary. So if, for example, a business transfer agreement purporting to transfer the seller's entire business to the buyer does not pass title to a particular asset, the further assurance clause could be invoked after completion to perfect title if that was the intention of the parties. The further insurance clause can also deal with the situation where completion of a transaction does not take place when the main agreement is signed. In the case of a business transfer, for example, the assignment or innovation of contracts with customers is often dealt with after completion of the main agreement. And a further assurance clause ensures the seller's cooperation in assigning or innovating such contracts. While a general obligation to carry out such acts may be implied by common law, it is preferable to rely on an express provision in the agreement. So that brings today's shoe pod session to an end. We've discussed a number of common boilerplate provisions which you may come across when reading a contract. It can be easy to ignore boilerplate provisions because they are often considered to simply be standard provisions. However, the wording used is often different and it is also important to check carefully what the boilerplate clauses say as disputes are often governed and even decided by these types of clauses. Thank you for listening. Thank you and goodbye for now.